I count myself among people who have found plagiarism detection services to be highly valuable. However, there are some ethical considerations we should all reflect on regarding these services and some potential alternatives to using plagiarism services that have much greater outcomes. Today, I welcome Dr. Stephanie Vi to Teaching in Higher Ed, episode number 81. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. This is Bonnie Stahoviak, and this is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to increase our personal productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. Today I'm welcoming to the show Dr. Stephanie Vai. She researches the construction of digital identities in social media spaces as well as critical approaches to composing technologies such as today's topic, Plagiarism Detection Services. And I'm actually reading off of Stephanie's bio, which we will be linking to in the show notes at teachinginhighered.com slash 81. She has a wonderful collection of all of her writings, including the ones on plagiarism detection services on academia. So I hope you will go check those out and access all of the great resources that she's made available through that service. Her doctorate from the University of Arizona is in rhetoric, composition, and the teaching of English, and her dissertation was Engaging Others in Online Social Networking Sites, Rhetorical Practices in MySpace and Facebook. Stephanie, welcome to Teaching in Higher Ed. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. I'm so glad to have been connected with you. It was actually one of those really funny, at least to me, Twitter tangles where Jesse Stommel had talked about something regarding plagiarism detection services, and I got really intrigued by that. And then I said, oh, would you come back on the show? He says, well, I would, but someone better. And before I knew it, there was five people down, and then we got to you, and you were the person in the whole world to talk to (laughs) about this. And I went and checked out your bio and was both intimidated and excited all at the same time to speak with you. And I'm just, again, thanks for investing your time today. How did you first become interested in studying plagiarism technologies? So it was actually as a graduate student, I started teaching back in 1999 at the University of Missouri, St. Louis, and Turnitin had just started like around 1997. And I had a few students who plagiarized in my classes because I was a new graduate teaching assistant. I was still trying to figure out my assignments. I didn't really have very good assignments in terms of being so-called plagiarism proof. And so I figured out that a couple of my students had plagiarized and I was angry. And I thought, Ooh, I wonder what things are out there to help me in terms of trying to figure out if my students are plagiarizing. I had done some research and I had found out about Turnitin and I ultimately decided that I didn't want to use a technology like this. And and actually it was funny because I ultimately decided that I didn't want to try to police my classroom. That initial anger 
turned into what I think was probably a better route for me, which was to think about, well, how can I just set up my assignments so that it's harder for students to plagiarize? Not, can I find a technology that will help me catch plagiarists? Denial, anger, bargaining, depression, acceptance, and hope. And you went through those and it sounds like about 15 minutes. So what about, what about for us slower students who maybe have been using it? for 10 years or more. That seems like a really fast time to have done it. Do you think that that might be unique to your discipline, thinking critically within your discipline? Or do you think that you're just able to move through all of those stages much quicker than the rest of us? (laughs) I'm a superhuman. Uh, No, (laughs) I I think it. it absolutely is because my discipline is so attuned to thinking about writing. Because of that, I had really good mentors who were able to say, look, everybody gets a student who tries to plagiarize and everybody has a student who does succeed in plagiarizing. But the answer is not to go catch all the plagiarists in your class. The answer is to think about becoming a better writing teacher and to think about setting up your classroom in such a way that students, first of all, maybe don't even want to or don't even think about plagiarizing because they're excited about the assignment it's meaningful to them. It makes a difference in some way. Like those things are amazing. If you can achieve those um, elements in your class, I think that's going to help quite a bit. But I think you're correct that my discipline is one that maybe we're thinking more about trying to be critical about technology and critical about writing technology specifically, because again, that's, that's what I do every day. Uh, I know that in some other disciplines, that focus on teaching writing is not as much to the forefront. And so maybe thinking about crafting better writing assignments is not going to be something that's going to come up as quickly or as easily as it did in my discipline. And that doesn't mean that there aren't avenues for making that kind of work happen. I mean, of course, writing across the curriculum programs and writing in the disciplines are having great successes, I think, with talking with interested faculty who want to to craft better writing assignments. But yeah, I was very, very lucky that I had people who said, whoa, 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 you're going the wrong direction. Don't be mad at your students. I mean, be mad for a little bit and then move (laughs) on. But if you're going to be mad at your students, that's just going to keep going forever and ever. There will always be things that you're going to be mad about. They didn't do the reading. They didn't do the homework. They don't come to class. They come to class and they don't do anything. I mean, there's always going to be something that you can be upset about. So I, I like the hope side of it better. When James Lang was on the show, he talked about that in many of his faculty workshops, he has faculty raise their hands if they have sped on the way to work that day. And that that's kind of an analogy that he uses. And that same idea, that has helped me so much have it not become something personal. They didn't do this to me. Just like I didn't speed against that police officer who gave me this. I didn't get a speeding ticket, but, but when I do, that should be the first thing. I'm not doing that to that individual. It's And that I thought, oh, that's a really good thing for me to hang on to. That's a good hook for me to keep in my mind. Well, let's take a couple of steps back and share a bit, because some of your research then got you interested in and focused on the history of Turnitin, although it sounds like you've lived through and worked through. <laughs> you don't have to go back, pull out, dust off those, you know, <laughs> the history books because you lived it. And so share a bit about that history. And then also you looked at some of the the tone of their marketing messages across those years too. Well, Turnitin is really 
fascinating in terms of a technology to research. And I'm, I'm using Turnitin as sort of the catch-all because colloquially that's what people talk about is, is Turnitin. But really it started as iParadigms LLC. So a student at the University of California, Berkeley, John Barry, was a teaching assistant who was interested in trying to use technology to allow his students to do peer review together, which is great. But what he found was that the students were, in his words, colluding with each other. They were helping each other in a classroom situation in which he actually had not set it up so that they were supposed to be able to do that. And he was trying to figure out ways then to achieve effective peer review but not have the students basically help each other write their papers. And so he sort of formed this idea of checking to see if a piece was original. And so Turnitin started out as originality checker, basically. And what it does is it looks to see if a piece is a certain percentage of original work. And so the higher the number that you get on Turnitin's originality checker, the, the less original it is, the more the material has been borrowed. Uh, but Turnitin really started out, interestingly, as a way that this graduate student could check to make sure that his students were doing original work in this class. And he thought, well, wouldn't it be interesting if other people could use this too? And they started just offering it for a dollar a paper. If you have a dollar, you have a paper that you want to check and see if it's original, we will check it for you. As it got further and further along, though, I think what's really fascinating about iParadigms or Turnitin, however you'd like to talk about it, is that their marketing messages have really shifted over the years. So if you go to the Wayback Machine and you look at some of Turnitin's original web materials, you'll see that a lot of their marketing messages and the way that they position themselves is as a service that kind of pits students and faculty members against each other. So the messages are kind of like, hey, faculty members, your students are probably going to cheat and they're probably going to be turning in unoriginal material unless you use this service, which will help you determine whether or not the material is original. If you even look at things like the colors, the color scheme was originally just very stark, kind of red and white, and there were lots of kind of old-timey pictures of uh, faculty members strolling on campus, you know, elbow patches and tweed. I mean, very much like a golden moment of a time when students did the right thing and faculty members didn't have to worry about their students. Over the years, as iParadigms has kind of morphed into this bigger and bigger thing, they've added different services and they've changed their marketing messages. So now, along with Originality Check, they have tutoring services, they have um, peer review services, they have Grademark, which is sort of an automated grading and you can drag and drop little pre-filled in um, comma splice or awkward onto students' papers. And as they've expanded, their marketing messages are less antagonistic, which is good, but they're more now insidious to me. And that is because they're mimicking the language and the values of my discipline in particular. And so now they're starting to talk about, um, you know, you want to make sure that writing in your classroom is happening in effective ways 
original, originality checker can help. Uh, grade mark can help. And the messages start becoming about, you're a busy faculty member. You don't have a lot of time. Turnitin can help. We can make grading 100 students as simple as grading one student. And so now the marketing messages are really about time and efficiency and about using a technological system to make your life as a faculty member easier. And it's not so much about students are going to try to get one over on you. It's about a move toward automated assessment and automated grading and automated peer review. And as you can see, as a writing instructor, this concerns me because that's my discipline. That's what we do best. And we're working really hard to fight against the idea that we're easily replaceable by machines. <laughs> but that's exactly what Turnitin is trying to uh, you know, use as its marketing message now is that this is a, a more efficient, a friendlier, and a greener way to run your classroom. Tell me more about the greener way. So back in the day, <laughs> there was lots of paper being shuffled in the classroom and of course, a lot of us today use course management systems. So like at University of Central Florida, we use Canvas. Students can just upload their papers. I can do all of my grading, all of my commenting through Canvas, and I can send it back to them. And no paper has been shuffled. So a lot of Turnitin's marketing messages now are trying to get students to want to upload their material through Turnitin's system or for faculty members to encourage their students to turn it in through their system to save paper, to make the grading easier. And they have uh, sort of advertising campaigns that will show huge stacks of paper and say, if you use turn it in, you know, 2.1 billion reams of paper will be saved. And you can almost hear the like, won't you think of the paper? <laughs> Which actually uh, in, on that note, it does save paper, but one mm -hmm. of the things that you've shared about, and I've, I've of course done my homework for today's interview, is that something, yes, there are some ethical considerations, and we'll talk more about what's going on with the faculty member, but there's also what we are, and in my case, I'd like to say inadvertently doing to my students that I didn't really realize. So talk a little bit about the student having to submit their work to a system like this? What are they having to agree to that, that does create some concerns? Mm -hmm. So there's some potential concerns for students when they have to submit their materials to Turnitin, whether they're submitting it directly to turnitin.com or whether they're submitting it through a learning management system that bundles Turnitin, such as Canvas or Blackboard. Once a student uploads their work, it's just sort of automatically routed to Turnitin and things um, are checked for originality. And, and, you know, the student never has to go to Turnitin at all themselves. But what they may not realize, especially if the faculty member doesn't realize it as well, is that oftentimes they're material, their paper is then being stored in Turnitin's huge, massive databases of student papers, academic articles, books, journals, web pages that have been crawled. I mean, they just have a ton of material and the student's papers become part of that material against which other students' papers then in the future are checked. And so there have been lawsuits in the past once students have realized this because they've said, wait a second, that's my intellectual property. I didn't agree to that. Well, unfortunately, the problem is, like with many sort of terms and conditions that we don't read, 
you did agree to that. You just didn't know that you were agreeing to that because nobody, nobody informed you. And as somebody who does a lot of qualitative research where I, I talk with people, I work with people, I interview them, I survey them, I always have to get informed consent when I speak with somebody. And I have to say, this is what I'm going to do with your material. These are the things that I'm going to write as a result of it. If you ever want to leave this research study, you can. I don't think we're doing as good of a job with informed consent around things like plagiarism detection technologies. And again, I think it's because in part, a lot of faculty members don't realize that their students' papers are going to be part of that massive database. Now, there are different ways that Turnitin has responded to those critiques. And so I will give them a little bit of credit in that response that it used to be that it was just added to the database. There was nothing you could do. You couldn't ask for your material to be taken out in any way. Because students and faculty members have critiqued that and said, you need to give us some other options. There are some options. And one of those does include that Turnitin can set up just an institutional database so that only the materials from this school are kept. They can also set it up so that materials aren't kept. But they don't advertise this very well. It's very difficult to figure out how to do it because they don't want you to do it. They're making their money off of students adding their material to the database. So they want you to do that. Yeah, and as someone who's, I, I know exactly which, I think I know exactly which checkbox you're talking about on all the many, many, many settings. You think, well, why wouldn't I want to submit this group of students' papers? Because then that just helps make my job easier and more efficient, as you have already described, <laughs> down down the line. So it would seem that and at least when I've looked at that in the past, it's been, well, why wouldn't I want this to have happen? But not really considering or thinking very critically about that this service now gets to make money off of the student's intellectual property, again, without their permission. So this is all, you know, something new to think about. Well, let's make sure that we've identified, I was going to say all, <laughs> you're all, we don't have that common time. <laughs> let's, let's make sure we've identified the main buckets of ethical concerns back on to the faculty side. You were setting up this idea that one big concern is developing people's writing skills into something that a robot could do is what I what I was gathering from what you said. So exactly. <laughs> I can't phrase it quite as eloquently as you do, but there's the robot grading, robot teaching, robot feedback, uh, mm -hmm. ethical concern. What are some of the others? Well, you know, there's another concern to me and other people may share this with me, and that is that Turnitin is really the only game in town. Mm. It, it's essentially a monopoly. Name another plagiarism detection technology out there that is as successful as Turnitin. I think that that's a problem when there's a monopoly on a service, and that's pretty much the only place that you can turn to, and then it becomes either you go with them or you do nothing or... You have to find other ways around it. So we can do things like, I'll take a really weird, suspicious phrase and I'll put it in quotes in Google and often I'll find materials. But turn it in being a monopoly is, I think, another ethical dimension of supporting this industry. Because if you're going to buy into this particular technology, you're basically supporting them in being a giant conglomerate that has essentially said in the past, will be like spell checker. There will be no room for anyone else in the market. So that has been their goal from the beginning is to be a monopoly and they've succeeded. 
they're incredibly expensive. So it can cost tens of thousands of dollars a year for an institution to subscribe to Turnitin. We, for example, at University of Central Florida, get a discount because we've been using them for so long. But even still, we're paying like $10,000 a year for this particular subscription. I could think of so many things mm. that I could use that $10,000 a year for that would enrich students' lives, I think, and their scholastic abilities and um, just the, the tenor of the university in ways that wouldn't support Turnitin. The Writing Center, for example, could use $10,000. We could hire more faculty members. There's many, many things I could think of. Let's go back and explore a bit about this environment of suspicion. Tell me, uh, as an educator, what that does then when I have set up this great, efficient robot that's going to do all my work for me. It's going to take 100 students and make it as easy as grading one. Let's actually look at what the other side of that ideally would look like. What would you like the culture in your classroom to look like, in my classroom to look like, instead of... I know some of you are going to cheat anyway, so let me set this up and, and I'm, I'm ready to catch you. T- tell me about what it would look like instead of that. I mean, to return back to where we started in the conversation where I was pissed off and I was angry at the student and I said that was not the way that I wanted to be, that was that kind of adversarial, I'm going to assume that all my students are potentially out to cheat and I've got to catch them. And I realized very quickly that that was going to be incredibly draining. I didn't want to go that direction. So it sounds a little utopian, but I mean, as a writing instructor, I would love to have a classroom where I've created a space where students feel comfortable writing, where they feel comfortable failing because I've introduced enough low stakes writing assignments that happen frequently that they can try something new or they can try something that they haven't done very well in the past and they can go, you know what, I'm going to do this terribly. And I can say as the instructor, that's okay. Because then that encourages them to feel like they're in a safe space pedagogically, that they can try something. And if I and their peer reviewers say, wow, that is totally not working, then they can back up and they can do something different. But that in my sort of utopian vision of what a writing classroom might look like, it might look like a place where students feel a level of trust in me and what I'm asking them to do, that they never feel like she's judging my work. I have to attain this level or this standard that I think is unachievable for me. I need to go then plagiarize, use somebody else's work because my own work isn't good enough. I want students to think that their own work, even if it's a beginning, an initial try, a leap of faith, is good enough for me. And so... If I can set up a classroom where the assignments say, give it a shot. If it's terrible, that's fine. Eventually, I want you to have a more polished and a better understanding of what's going on here. But that's going to be after multiple drafts, peer review, talking about this in class, looking at successful models. And I think all of these elements that I've just talked about here, too, are ways that we can help, quote, plagiarism proof our classroom. If you're looking at drafts, if you're having students peer review, if you're doing small, low-stakes writing assignments frequently, and if you let students know that they have opportunities to try things out in a safe space where it doesn't matter if your MLA isn't 100% perfect, we'll get there. 
but that's not the purpose of this draft right now. I think that they're going to be much more willing to try and to try something and perhaps fail. And I want to encourage that in my class. And I would hope to encourage that in other people's classrooms as well. Let your students fail. It's okay. Give them opportunities to try things so that they can get better because writing is really, really hard. Anybody who writes will tell you it's awful. (laughs) You need practice, but you get better through practice. How about this idea of creating assignments that it's not possible to plagiarize on? Could you share some of your experience with that? Maybe some assignments that you've used, and then let's try to tackle one that's maybe outside of your discipline to to give yeah. people some ideas out uh, other than just in traditional writing. It's really hard to make anything that's going to be absolutely plagiarism proof. I mean, there's the possibility of a student who's incredibly motivated, who's just going to get a friend or a classmate to write a paper for them. And, you know, there's, there's nothing that will stop a student who really wants to go that far. But can you create an assignment that it's going to be harder for a student to plagiarize? Yes. And so one of the things that I've done in the past that's really successful is that I want students to be in class. I want them to be engaged. I want them to be part of a community of students. And they have to be there to do that. And so if I can incorporate some of those moments, like classroom discussion or a reading that we've done that's kind of unusual that's in our class or a local sort of community event or um, something that, you know, is very difficult for somebody outside of our particular area to find or to, to draw on, those make it a lot more difficult to plagiarize because then the level of effort to kind of mock it up and make it fit that assignment, you might as well just like write the paper from the the get-go. So I think that this actually can be successful beyond just the writing classroom because there's going to be moments like that in every discipline, in every classroom where unless all you're ever doing is reading PowerPoints word for word out of a textbook, you're going to have classroom discussions classroom moments, things that are local to your area, where students, if you ask them, you know, go out and do a miniature interview with this person at this local um, event or this community area, you can tell very quickly if they've actually done that or not. Or you need to quote one of your classmates from discussion, and then that encourages them to be listening to their classmates and to maybe take notes and to pay attention, and you can talk about citation practices, which again, that should be, you know, not just writing, that kind of thing should be happening in other disciplines as well. So the more moments that you can take from an active, engaged classroom, or a classroom that is embedded in a specific local moment and local place, and bring those into your assignments, that's going to help significantly, because students can't make those up very easily. What have I not asked you about plagiarism detection services that I should ask before we go over to the recommendations segment? That is such a good question. <laughs> you, you've asked excellent questions. There is something that's related that I've wanted to go look at my bookshelf really quickly, and it's actually not about plagiarism detection per se, but it connects to our discussion. Let me see if I can find it. It's this great book that I think faculty members should read because it gets you into the mindset of a student. It's my freshman year, and I can't remember the author's name. Mm-hmm. 
And I don't know if you've read this book oh, before. Oh my goodness. I love this book. Yeah, it's a fantastic book. And the reason yeah. that I mention it in conjunction with plagiarism detection and all the other things that we've been talking about today is that when I read it, I thought, oh my God, my students are doing so much. And if you are out of the game for a while and you're not a student, it's really easy to forget all the things that go into the average student's day. And just the idea that they're juggling all these classes, they're juggling having a 40 hour work week sometimes. A lot of my students have children of their own, are married, are returning to school, are just struggling with things that I was not struggling with when I was going to school as an undergraduate. And it's just a great reminder that I think we really need to remember to be really empathetic to our students and to say, it's not that the student is trying to pull one over on you or cheat or get out of the classroom without doing the work. It's that a lot of times they're struggling with things that they don't feel comfortable sharing with us, first of all. And then when they finally do break down and say, look, the reason that I've been doing so poorly in this class is because I've been struggling with this medical issue or a family member is dying or something else is going on. And I couldn't tell you because I didn't want you to be disappointed in me. And like, that's the moment where I feel like, man, what can I do so that I can help my students understand that they can come to me and they can tell me about these things before it spirals into a huge issue that may or may not involve plagiarism or cheating, but just we need to remember that our students are facing an educational system that is wildly different in many ways than the ones that we went through. And the fact that they're going to be, you know, just facing massive student loans and having to work while they're going to school and the expectations of many instructors who think you should have already learned X, let's move on to what interests me. That's really hard for them. And, and we should, you know, be a little bit more empathetic about where they're coming from. That is such a great book for helping be more empathetic. It was Rebecca Nathan. It was the author. And oh, I read it years ago and absolutely loved it. So what a great, a great recommendation. Speaking of recommendations, this is the point in the show where we will each give either one or more recommendations. And mine, I was telling you before we started recording, mine feels lame because it's so simple, but I absolutely need this reminder this time of year of just how good it feels to go for a walk. So my recommendation today is to walk. You're in the middle of grading. Many of us are, are right in the throes of it. And it feels like I can't even step away for a minute because I've got to do, do, do. And I just find that my body gets tensed up and all of that. And I'm doing a lot more work from home right now because I don't have the interruptions of being on campus and classes have ended at least at my institution. So just a quick 10 minute walk around the neighborhood is just absolutely reinvigorates me, gets me back in such a, a better place and I'm ready to go at it again. So my recommendation is to take more walks, quick walks during the day. And Stephanie, what are your recommendations for us today? Well, I am wholeheartedly about taking the walks and I'm going to be doing that this evening after I check a few things off of my to-do list. <laughs> and I have been using this app recently that was recommended to me by a friend and it's called Wunderlist. Apparently it is German. So it is the Wunderlist, um, but it's W-U-N-D-E-R-L-I-S-T. And it's a to-do list app. 
And it's very, very simple, but it's been very powerful for me because the act of just writing out everything that I need to do for a day, and it will categorize by week, like here's what you need to do this week, here's what you need to do today. You can do subtasks. So this bigger task has these three smaller tasks. You need to do those. You can put in dates when it needs to be accomplished, and it will send you an email reminding you the day before. It's fantastic. And it's actually made me more productive, which is what I'm really looking for in a technology like that. So I like checking little things off my wonder list. And that's been really helpful. The other one that I want to recommend is kind of in a similar vein. and It's called Toggle, T-O-G-G-L. And I took on an administrative role at my university this semester. And I realized that I had no clue how much time this was going to take. And I'm trying to track how much time it takes me to do email for this position, to um, be in meetings for this position, how much time is spent with students, how much time is spent with curriculum. Uh, Toggle allows me to do that because basically it's just a start and stop button. I just put in what I'm working on, email with Bonnie, hit start, and then when I'm done, I hit end, and it just keeps a running total that then I can say, tell me how much... I've been emailing this past week, this past month, this past year. It's scary, the amount of email and the amount of meetings that I've had. But it's good for me to then go to um, you know, somebody in my university and, and make an argument about time and say, look, you can see that I have spent this much time on this thing. I need help or I need to step back on this other element that doesn't take as much time. So those two apps I highly recommend along with taking walks. <laughs> I love it. Well, thank you so much for investing your time in this community. I, I actually love that I quote unquote met you on Twitter, because that does just go to the power of networked learning communities. And it was so fun to be connected. And you were just so open right away to my email and, and to really contributing to people who are listening, which people listening that we all want to be better at teaching. That's our that's our focus. And thank you for helping us become better at that. Thank you for inviting me. And I don't know if it's appropriate to put it out there, but if any of your listeners are interested in engaging in a conversation with me about any of the ideas that I've brought up, if you want advice about how to do assignments differently or just, you know, thinking through the different technologies that we use in teaching, I'm happy to field those kind of emails. So feel free to find me on Twitter. I'm at Digiret, or you can email me at stephanie.vi at ucf.edu. Wonderful. And we will put a link to those in the show notes, of course, with your permission. But I'm guessing since you just shared it, that we yep. have your permission. I shouldn't guess, though, because that would be like, turn it in with guessing <laughs> we have students. For, You've twisted my head today. <laughs> Thanks again, Stephanie. It was a great Thank conversation. You. Thanks, everyone, for listening to today's episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. As I said before, if you'd like to access the show notes, those will be at teachinginhighered.com slash 81. Stephanie and I would love to hear your feedback on the episode and any comments or questions that you have about plagiarism detection services. As always, if you have other kinds of feedback, I welcome that at teachinginhighered.com slash feedback. Like Stephanie, I am also on Twitter. That is B-O-N-N-I 208. So I'd love to connect with you there or on our Facebook page at teachinginhighered.com. Sorry, at facebook.com slash teachinginhighered. 
And if you have yet to subscribe to the weekly newsletter, that'll get you all the links that we talk about on the shows, as well as an article on teaching or productivity just once a week. You can do that. Sign up for it at teachinginhighered.com slash subscribe. And that'll get you a copy of the 19 educational technology tools that you can use in the classroom and for your own personal productivity. So I hope you'll consider signing up. Thanks for listening and I'll see you next time.